Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We're a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. Although the pandemic causes us to adjust our methods, our message stays the same. God, through Jesus, is making all things new. joining us online. I want to thank you all for being with us today. My name is Sharita and um, I am honored to be ministering the word this afternoon. Um, we're going to continue our epiphany series and we're going to pick up today in John chapter 12 and dig in a little bit to those first 11 verses. And we're going to talk about from that place what it means to have a seat at the table. So we recognize that this is a very prevalent notion in our culture right now. Um, people are talking about it and saying it a lot. And in true Detroit church fashion, um, we haven't been able to do this as much since we haven't been having our gatherings, but we all need to be engaged in this uh, adventure today. So I wanna just open up by asking you all, and I think we have a mic somewhere close. You can see Krista. But I want to ask you all, and those of you online as well, what does it mean to you to have a seat at the table? What does it mean to you to have a seat at the table? Down Butler, ladies and gentlemen, down Butler. I think of uh, the 23rd Psalm and him preparing a table for us. Woo. in the presence of our enemies and anointing our heads with oil. And so he prepares the table. We don't have to prepare it. There's a place for us. And there are enemies, but our enemies cannot take that place away from us. So that's what I think. That's so powerful. Thank you, Don. There's a place for us. Come on. Our sister Kim. When I think about a seat at the table, I feel like a place where you're welcome. Your love, there's intimacy, there's fellowship. And because I know when someone's at my table, you're only there if I want you there. Woo! So that means an invitation has to be extended. You can't just show up at Kim's table. Y'all remember that? <laughs> remember that. My brother Jeremy. I think about relationship and access, and I think about having a seat at the table. To me, a seat at the table requires inclusion, 
and it results in diversity. It means all are equally and incredibly valuable and not only wanted, but desperately needed because of Jesus Christ and what he did. Woo! Yeah. Amen, amen, amen. She said a whole mouthful right there. Thank you, Julia. So she talked about inclusion and equality and everyone belonging and Jesus being at the center of it all. So I want to open this up today and tie in uh, these three implications of what it means to have a seat at the table. Three implications, access, ownership, power. Say it with me, access, ownership, and power, right? You need access, like Kim said, you need permission or an invitation in order to come and have a seat. You can't just show up and sit down, right? And then the fact that you need an invitation implies that there's ownership. Someone owns the table and has to offer you and extend to you a seat. And then the final implication is power. Why do we care? Why do, even we, why do we even want to be at the table, right? We want to be at the table so that we can influence or have power over decisions that have an impact on us and others. We want to be at the table to access power. So in business, it's often about insider conversations. It's a place where deals get brokered, money gets made, right? In my line of business, community development, it's really about pushing back against marginalization of underrepresented communities and making sure that community residents and stakeholders have a voice in the decisions that are made that impact their quality of life. And this thing about pushback is something that I experience quite often, right? Um, just trying to do what God has called me to do, I have very often encountered the sense of pushback or questioning why or how I got a particular position or ended up with a seat at a particular table. And um, I recall on an occasion pretty early in my community development career, um, I was in probably my late 20s. We had been married maybe five or six years and uh, had three kids. So what I'm trying to say is I wasn't a newbie newbie, right? I've been out of college for several years, but early in community development. And um, at this particular time, I was, I was a program director and organizer for an um, environmental justice organization. And in that role, I led all of our efforts to address and eliminate childhood lead poisoning in the city of Detroit. So in this work, I'm sitting on citywide and statewide task forces and um, occasionally had to do some public speaking um, to educate folks and, and get people riled up that we could join together and actually deal with this issue. And so one occasion, um, I'm invited to participate in this panel discussion, right? And so I arrive early, want to gather my thoughts. It was going to be on the radio, so I wanted to make sure I was well prepared and understood the logistics. So I find my spot, have my seat there, and the gentleman who was the moderator, uh, who was the leader of a very influential religious organization in the city of Detroit, you know, he comes over to me and I'm thinking he's just going to greet me or whatever. My man comes up to me and like flat out asks me, how'd you get a seat at the table? <laughs> and I'm like, um, hi, how are you? Um, nice to meet you, right? Like I'm, I'm completely taken aback. But if I'm honest with you all, that wasn't the first time and it certainly wouldn't be the last time that I was made to feel or experiencing it either being explicitly or implicitly conveyed that I didn't belong. And this is with somebody not knowing anything about me, just on the basis of how I look. 
Maybe I looked too young. Maybe I was too short. Maybe too female, too black. I don't know. But just on the basis of how I looked. And um, experiencing that over and over again can actually take a toll. But what I've learned in my experience is not, never to offer a defense or justification for my presence or my existence, right? Yeah, yeah. I recognize that my position or invitation to any other table comes out of me first always being welcome and having a seat at his table. Yeah. And that then gives me the confidence to go wherever he decides to tell me to go, to say whatever he decides to tell me to say, and ultimately just to be who it is that he's requiring me to be and allow that to speak for itself. And I will say, at the end of this particular engagement, the gentleman was very well informed of why I had been given that invitation. <laughs> all right, all right, but back to this. So last week, Lindsay did a phenomenal job expounding on John chapter 11 and sharing with us the glory of disappointment. And man, was chapter 11 not like power packed and drama filled. We had the low lows, we had the high highs, we had Lazarus, um, who's this friend of Jesus. He gets sick and he dies. Everybody's like pressuring Jesus, like we got to get there, we got to do something. Jesus takes his time. He waits several days. And then just when everyone thought all hope was lost, all hope was gone, he shows up on the scene and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Y'all, like everybody should have been ready to party. We should have been ready to celebrate, should have been ready to go down. However, the chief priests find out about Jesus showing out yet again. And they're like, okay, we cannot take this guy. We literally have to stop this guy. And the chief priests began to plot to assassinate and take Jesus off the board. So as a result, he has to lay low for a little bit, right? He's not as out and about as he had been. And then we get to our passage today. It's six days before Passover. They finally get to come together and have this supper, this meal, in order to celebrate this resurrection of Lazarus. Um, the, the supper was like the main meal of the day. Everybody's ready to chill, to lay back, to recline at the table, to have great conversations. And whenever we see Jesus in scripture at the table with his disciples, it's literally like he's extending us an invitation, yeah. right? Come on in, like get in on this conversation. And I can just imagine the conversation on this particular day was going to bang. So you have Jesus there, you have the 12 disciples there, you have Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who Jesus had just resurrected, and they were at the home of, according to some of the other gospel accounts, Simon the leper. So Simon the leper, who probably should have been known as Simon the ex-leper, because he couldn't have been at the table if he was still a leper, right? So now you got this guy who Jesus healed of leprosy. You got this guy who Jesus raised from the dead. Like, you can just imagine the scene and what the conversation was going to be like. So that brings us to our passage today, and I'm going to ask young Judah to come and read for us today's passage. John 12, 1-11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they gave a supper for him there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped, it, and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Yeah. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he, he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And since he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. A large crowd of Jews learned that he was there. And they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, following him as Savior and Messiah. Thank you, Judah. Can y'all give Judah a hand? Thank you all so much. Thank you, Judah. Appreciate your help this afternoon. So I want to pick up again um, in verse 3, where we see Mary of Bethany here. And Mary of Bethany is mentioned three times in the Gospels in association with Jesus' feet. I thought that was really striking. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, and he remarked of her, she's chosen the good part. Then in John chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus calls for her. She comes to him. She falls at his feet. She's weeping because her brother Lazarus had just died. And Jesus, it says in the scripture, was deeply moved by her tears and the mourning of those with her. So there's an indication here that this is somebody that Jesus really cared about. Then we get to John chapter 12, these first 11 verses. And here she is again in this passage at the Lord's feet, anointing his feet with this exquisite perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. There are several things about this that I find really striking. So first of all, I think that foot washing in church culture today is kind of romanticized, right? You know, it's this really pious thing that you do as a demonstration, so on and so forth. But foot washing in the scripture was disgusting and degrading, right? Like only the most menial of servants would ever do this particular task. And here we have Mary, who is someone that Jesus loved, who clearly loved him, uh-oh, who clearly loved him, seemingly degrading herself, right? And washing, not washing, but anointing the Savior's feet. And then not only like messing with his feet, but it was indecent for a woman at that time to take her hair down in public in front of men. So she not only is anointing his feet, but she takes her hair down to wipe his feet with her hair. This would have been shocking, okay? This would have been shocking at that time. Now also this perfume that she used, this nard that was talked about, again, it was known to be exquisite and very extravagant. Judah said it was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii would, be, would have been the equivalent of a whole year's salary. So this woman takes probably a very significant amount of her net worth and pours it on the feet of Jesus. 
that by itself would preach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary is here. She's not caring about nothing or nobody. She's focused in this moment simply on pouring out her worship and devotion to Jesus. And everybody would have noticed, right, because it's said in verse 3 that the fragrance filled the house. So can you imagine the reputational risk this woman is taking? Like how people would have been looking at her, what might have possibly been said about her, and she's concerned with none of it. She's literally solely focused on honoring Christ. And as Judas rebukes her, Matthew and Luke's account tells us that the rest of the disciples decided to join in, joined him in his protest against such waste. What this said to me and spoke so loudly to me is that worship can be risky and costly. Authentic, real worship and devotion for Jesus and being brave enough to express it is both risky and costly. So generally, except when I'm up in situations like this, okay, I'm generally a very laid back, quiet kind of person, uh, except when I'm at home with my people. And um, my people uh, <laughs> would tell you that you probably wouldn't believe some of the antics that ensue in our household. So after a certain time in the evening, uh, my, son, my husband likes to refer to me as a cartoon uh, because things tend to get a little animated. And um, I have all of my sons now are in double digits, right? And um, so they're at an age when they like their space. And I, their mother, enjoy invading their space and bringing all kinds of silliness and carrying on um, that will delight them and make them smile. But I know really they wish I would go away. <laughs> and then finally, um, I used to, not as much now, I used to occasionally entertain them. So we were a WWE fam, right? Like wrestling was our thing. I'm a boy mom, okay? That's what we do. And so um, wrestling was our thing. And I, mommy, also had my own signature wrestling moves. Um, I would bring Judah up here to demonstrate the mommy bomb and the rockabye baby, but um, I will not embarrass my son with such today. Um, but what's the point of all this, right? Like, home is home. And in contrast to the feeling that I described earlier of sometimes not always feeling welcome or like I belong, like home, I can fully be myself and experience all the love, all the acceptance, and none of that weird stuff that happens when you know you're being tolerated and not fully accepted or welcomed. So I am an intimate one, right? Like, again, as an introvert, I'm somebody who, who tends to have people, a small crowd that's, that's really close to me, and I'm replenished by closeness. Like, that is what fuels me. And the presence of God is my happy place. Okay, the presence of God is my happy place. So the song that they sung earlier that many of you may not have known um, is like my anthem, that I finally found where I belong. That is truly uh, something near and dear to my heart because the presence of God is where I know I belong. And so in worship, it's really easy for me to forget about all of y'all and just do my worship thing. And then sometimes I'm a little embarrassed when I remember that all of y'all are still here, right? When I open my eyes. But the reality is the presence of God is where I belong. So in this moment, 
Man, Mary is just pouring out her worship over Jesus. And like, can't you just hear her heart's cry as she's pouring out this extravagant gift? Lord Jesus, you're worthy. Right. She wasn't saying anything, but like you can hear in her actions, her heart's cry as she shows us what it looks like to humbly but still boldly come before the Lord. What's also really interesting is it seems like someone is always coming for Mary's worship. Both times, Jesus, thank God, is there to be like, up, oh, chill on Mary. But somebody is always coming for her worship. So again, in Luke 10, we talked about her sister Martha is doing all this work and she's serving and she comes to Jesus and she's like telling on Mary, like, tell her to help me. And Jesus like, Mary, Martha, I know you're concerned about a lot of things, but Mary has chosen the good part. And it will not be taken from her. So chill on Mary, right? Then again, here today, we see Judas and the disciples coming from Mary's worship, calling her worship waste. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Those three words struck me to my core. Leave her alone. It made me think about a question that my friend Latrice has been raising in some of our conversations. She says, who protects the black woman? Who protects the black woman? Historically, our value as black women was seen in our ability to produce and to reproduce. Rather than being seen as precious and worthy of protection, you still more often than not hear about our strength, our resilience, how much we can take. And some of you may know what it's like to feel belittled or berated. You're trying to do what's right, maybe in something that you're doing in service to the Lord, or maybe even for just showing up. Your presence to some seems to be offensive. And oftentimes there's no one physically present like Jesus was to say, leave her alone. I can tell you, having come to a place of maturity, in my walk with God, that I know him to be a defender of the weak. He has never abandoned me, and any and every time needed, he's always consistently come to my aid. And as a result of my experience of him, I'm less concerned about what people think, what people say, how I might be devalued, how I might, you know, be somebody's trying to keep me in my place. My place is seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. And I'm growing more and more confident in taking risks and releasing my oil because I am has already determined that all things, even the painful things, even the troubling things, all things will work for my good and his glory and they're being banked in an eternal account. There's no way that Mary could have known at that time that her act of extravagant love would be recorded in scripture and still referenced and talked about and instructed for us even today, thousands of years later. Mark 14, 9, Jesus says of her, and truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That is so powerful. That is so awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He honors our worship. Yeah. Now let's juxtapose Mary's act of worship with good old Judas and how his hatred is exposed. 
So chronologically, these are Judas's first words recorded in scripture. And this is how Judas chooses to use his voice at the table. Again, you can imagine what Mary was doing was astonishing. So you can imagine that she's breaking open this oil as the perfume fills the fragrance, fills the room like a holy hush falls over the house as everybody's like, what is happening? Judas breaks the silence after Mary's astonishing act and attacks her worship saying, this ointment should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor as if it belonged to him and he had any right to say what was supposed to happen to it, right? And something to notice here, Judas here is trying to introduce confusion as if extravagant worship and service are somehow in conflict. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves using what appears to be moral excuses to do covertly evil things. This moment wasn't about the poor. This moment was about worshiping Jesus. Judas, tell us how you really feel about the Savior, right? And we know that his rebuke was not about the poor or him being concerned about the poor because the scriptures plainly say so. It wasn't about justice. Judas was about to betray Jesus for money. And before we judge him too harshly, <laughs> we have to remember that Gal Galatians 6 tells us that we have to watch ourselves lest we too be tempted. And oftentimes when we hear this, these stories, you know, in hindsight, it's like Mary is this good person and that's who we want to identify ourselves with. But we have to remember at that time, Mary was the outlier. All of Jesus' disciples were like Rara and Judas. They were like on the side of Judas. And so we have to like even be honest with ourselves and say, is there a little bit of Judas in me? And I really believe this passage is here as a warning for us all. We can have, we can be at the table with Jesus. We can be loved by him. We can be numbered among his closest friends and still at the end of the day, betray him. It's telling that Judas's ultimate betrayal of the Savior was only a few days away at this point. So again, perhaps Judas is feeling disillusioned. You know, maybe he decided to follow Jesus because he thought it was going to get him notoriety, a name, and fame. Jesus keeps talking about this kingdom that's coming. Where's the kingdom at, right? Or maybe he was disappointed because Jesus simply refused to be the Savior everybody wanted him to be. Maybe at this point, Judas is justifying the things in his heart, saying, he betrayed me. He let me down. Why shouldn't I resent him? Why shouldn't I betray him? Is he really who he's saying he is? And I want to also go back to this false equivalency between worship and service, because I feel like this is the issue that still comes up for us today. And I want to say unequivocally that worship is the principal thing. If we gather anything from these verses, worship is the principal thing. And trying to redirect or repurpose resources Devoted to worship in any other way expresses evil intent. Even in our serving Christ. Christ and him crucified and worship of him has to be the priority. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that our good works have already been established, right? 
So when we prioritize worship, devotion, and relationship, we can literally walk into these good works as a demonstration of, not in competition with, our devotion to the Lord. Worship is our response to, being, to having a seat at the Lord's table. So we should ask ourselves, why do we feel the need to always be doing something if sitting at the feet of Jesus is what Jesus calls the good part? Why are we so uncomfortable with simply worshiping Jesus? I'll say it one more time. Worship is the principal thing. So even in this moment, like Jesus, oh, we still have so much to learn from our Savior. And I encourage you all just to kind of like dig into this in your own time. But I'm even looking at Jesus and his rebuke of Judas And how loving even his rebuke of Judas was in this moment. This was an inflection point for for Judas. Like the Lord knew what was in his heart. And even in this moment, he's providing an opportunity for Judas to see the error of his ways and repent. Unfortunately, we know the route he ultimately chose and how it turned out for him. So these last few verses... Starting with verse 9, takes us outside the house. People found out that Jesus was in Bethany, so this big crowd starts to gather. They're not devoted to Jesus like Mary. They're not necessarily hostile to him like the chief priests. They're curious, right? They're gathering. They want to see Jesus. They want to see this dude who had been raised from the dead. And so they're all gathering outside the house. And you would think, in light of all these things, all the miracles, the resurrection, the authority of Jesus' teaching, that the chief priests, those who were called to lead the people in service to God, might just reconsider their opposition to Jesus, God's manifested son. They might consider not only his words and actions, but even what the prophets foretold of him in scripture. But we all know, again, we have the benefit of the gospels to know that they were blinded by fear and thirst for power. In John eleven forty eight, 48, it says, they were like, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's like a tale of two tables. We have the Lord's table, we have the Romans' table. And the chief priests had clearly chosen the Romans. They had been given the sphere of influence and power, and they were not at all interested in coming to the Lord's table. And as leaders today, we have to be careful lest we fall prey to the same deception. God's promise was being fulfilled in their time, but they were so concerned about what they had to lose that they totally missed the gift of God and ultimately crucified him. Political power is so seductive. They're not even acknowledging God as the true authority at this point. They fear the Romans. Let's just ponder this for just a moment. Their position and authority as priests of the Lord comes from the Roman government. I believe there's an object lesson in that for us today. We certainly honor the authority of the land as scripture commands, but the position that we must give preeminence 
in our conduct, in our character, in our decision-making must be our position in Christ. We have to be conscious of the subtle compromises we're tempted to make every day just to be effective in this world system. Remember, these were not gangsters. These were priests. Yet we see them plotting to assassinate Jesus and Lazarus. Not for anything that they had done wrong, but simply to protect their position and to stop the spread of the truth. Lazarus's resurrection was not in question. It wasn't a fable. It wasn't a myth. They were not denying the veracity of it. It just simply did not fit the narrative that they wanted to spin. And so they said they had to, it had to be stopped for two reasons. One, in verse 11, it said on account of this thing with Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can't believe that. And then it was an embarrassment to the Sadducees who denied that resurrection from death was even possible. So again, rather than deal with the reality that Lazarus represented, they doubled down and, and sought to destroy the evidence. Again, the parallels that we could draw was with what's happening in our nation today are very, very striking. So as we look at what's happening with the priests and Judas versus the love so clearly displayed by Mary, we can see that no one is truly neutral about Jesus. Luke eleven twenty three says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever, whoever does not gather with me scatters. People of God, he's calling for us to take a stand to go on the offensive with our love, our joy, our peace, as these are our weapons of warfare that are not carnal or material, but are mighty through God that can pull down strongholds. Jesus is calling for us to take a stand in our generation. And as I prepare to close today, I wanna look again at this contrast between Mary and Judas. So we see here Judas is exhibiting this fake, hypocritical, pretentious love that wanted to be seen with Jesus because of what he thought it could get him. On the other hand, Mary displays this real, authentic love and devotion that's marked by extravagant worship. Judas demonstrates hate, condemnation, betrayal, and in Mary we see this demonstration of love sacrifice and worship. Judas probably looked good to people on the outside, seemed like a moral dude. They probably trusted him, put him in charge of the money. On the other hand, we have Mary, who seemingly is humiliating herself on the floor, wiping Jesus's feet with her hair. For Judas, it would always be stuff over Jesus. Jesus was seen as an opportunity to get possessions, and he was only really concerned about what he could get from his association with Jesus. For Jesus, for Mary, I'm sorry, it would always be Jesus over stuff. She saw her possessions as an opportunity to bless Jesus as she gave him her best, most costly gift. The scripture says that this gift releases an unmistakable fragrance in the house.
Love has a fragrance. Death has a fragrance. The Lord has a table. The world has a table. Which invitation are you vying for? Which will you ultimately accept? Is your aim political power and position marked by the fear of man, what man can give or take? Or are you willing to walk in obedient, extravagant love for Jesus that might bruise your ego, might draw some derision and opposition, but ultimately will result in true spiritual authority and life-changing power. Jesus is calling. Come, have a seat at my table. His way leads to the cross, but the glory that will be revealed can't be compared to this present suffering. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are so gracious to us to invite us to your table. God, we thank you that even in our weakness, you never leave us, you never forsake us, but God, you draw us by your spirit and you give us opportunity, even as you extend it to the one who would ultimately betray you, an opportunity to turn and to repent. God, I pray that we will become intimate ones, worshipers, God, who are not afraid to release our oil, to pour it on the feet of Jesus. God, we won't be too prideful to kneel at your feet, to get our instruction and direction from you in the secret place. So Father, we can go to any table that you send us and represent you with both humility and boldness. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.